practical, simple, straight out of scripture message, but we'll uh, go a few places to illustrate it. I want to remind you, uh, we began the year with an insert that had the worship order on it. On the back, you'll find a very short, simple outline, and below that are some discussion questions. Uh, You can use those for your personal reflection. If you want to use them in your small groups, that's okay. Uh, Part of my job is to help get the church ready for a new preacher, and a lot of the preachers coming in are going to want to have an outline in the bulletin. And they're going to want to have an opportunity to discuss the things that were shared in sermon. I don't know if our guy will want that, but we're at least making room for that, especially since we had a blank piece of paper on the back. So uh, we're going to do that. Just a little bit more effort, but you'll find it helpful, and it's a good size to use. Uh, I'm thankful that I was informed that Ray Coates, who helped uh, organize the Prayer and the scripture reading and the staking of the 30 entrances of Longview is here today. And uh, I know a number of folks from the church here were a part of that effort. Uh, My last couple of years in Abilene, I was a part of a group of conservative Bible-believing ministers, uh, a couple of Church of Christ guys, a Wesleyan Methodist kind of a Bible church, a couple of Assembly of God guys, and the police chief. And we got together once a month, and we we prayed for Abilene, and then uh, called in what we called, what the police chief called, the strike teams, uh, to come pray about specific events that were going on in Abilene. And it helped in Abilene. But what happens when the door closes to Satan in one area? He goes somewhere else. And so we had to take that idea to some of the small surrounding towns because that's exactly what happened. Uh, Some of the violence and other things uh, moved from the city of Abilene. We had a stretch uh, of railroad tracks. If you've never been to Abilene, right down the middle of the city is a railroad, and they fly through there. And over about a year and a half period, we had six people that died, a lot of the homeless Uh, find shelter in that area, and six people died in the course of a year and a half. And so uh, we had about 300 people turn out, and we prayed over all the places that people lost their lives and over that strip of the the roads and the railroad track, and since then there have not been any of those accidents. We say we believe in prayer, and we say we believe in announcing the name of Jesus, that it is powerful and mighty. Uh, and uh, yet sometimes we don't practice that faith enough. It's not magic. It's not formulaic. But it is a commitment to live up to the lordship of Jesus that we confess and invite him to do what God in his sovereign will longs to do, but is waiting for us to invite him in to do it to his glory. So uh, we want to welcome Ray, and I want to thank all those that were a part of that. Uh, this, this morning we're in a series, a uh, sh- really short series, because we've got some things we've got to get to as the, the uh, search team gets super busy over the next couple of months. Uh, we've got some things we've got to get to, but... I wanted to sneak in a little uh, series on uh, really superheroes. But they come from forgotten stories. A lot of these stories, a lot of these people you may have heard of, but you don't know much about. 
But these folks are eternal difference makers. And over the course of uh, uh, 40 years in ministry, I've come to see that these kinds of folks make greatness for God accessible to the people of God. Because most of us have believed the lies of Satan that say, you can't do much. You can't make much difference. What you try to do is only going to matter to you. And what you do in private is not going to matter to much of anybody. And all of these folks are what I call cornbread folks. You know, there's cornbread and there's crepes. Now, I like crepes. But when I grew up, we had cornbread and beans twice a week. I didn't know it was because we were poor. My dad was a toothbrush salesman at first. Apparently, there's not a lot of money in selling toothbrushes and combs. And so uh, we'd have cornbread and beans, and we would have onions and sausage. And that was the good night. And the leftover night, there was no sausage. But you can live on cornbread and beans. I thought I'd get an amen on that one. You can live on cornbread and beans. But you can't live on crepes. Crepes are specialties. They're la-di-da food. And I like them. But if you've ever tried to cook them, they're a mess, even with those special crepe things that were popular back when I was growing up 50 years ago. I think most of those ended up in the junkyard because they're so hard to make. So these are cornbread folks. And today we're talking about three people, and you probably know them. On your left is Robin, and on your right is, and in the back is Alfred. Yeah, most folks know this stuff. And it's because Batman, I I think in my lifetime there have been six or seven different Batman. I guess you'd call them Batmen to be popular, but each of those guys subbed in as Batman. So I want to ask you a question. Which of those three would you want to be? When I was a little kid, I will tell you that aside from Bill Gates, nobody wanted to be Alfred. You know, all the gee whiz, whiz bang, all the magical stuff down under the basement, you know, in the bat cave where Alfred lived. Uh, you know, a few techie wonks wanted to be Alfred. But if you were the oldest kid like me, the neurotic oldest child, how many of your oldest children? Come on, raise your hands. Okay, we're neurotic. You know, we're the ones that tend to follow the rules. Uh, we're, it's because we were the experiment for our parents on how to parent it. You know, that's the way it was. But one thing you got to do is you got to be Batman. And I know this is a little sexist, but I, I told the, the folks at the back, uh, at the booth, I can't do any women heroes because they don't wear any clothes. <laughs> and I'm not going to put that up on the screen. I'm sorry. There's a line that we'll go, we're going to draw. So, so, I mean, Batman's bad enough, but come on. Uh, so I got to be Batman. And all my friends got to be Batman, even if they were guys or girls. Who was Robin? Little brother or little sister, right? We were always a little suspicious about Robin anyway. He seemed a little weird. So nobody really wanted to be Robin. And nobody wanted to be 
Alfred. But when you think about who you would want to be, one of those characters is indispensable to the story, and without him, there wouldn't be a story. You know who I'm talking about? Without Alfred, there's nothing. There's nobody. We're going to kill the lights. I'm going to hope that we can get this little video scene in here, but let's kill the lights right quick. This is a little dark scene because all the Batman scenes are dark. Let's even kill these if we can. And We're going to take a minute, and I want you to listen to this reflection from a later Batman movie that reveals something of the story. Is there something wrong with him? Alfred, my pig-headed? Is it, is it always my way or the highway? No, he is, actually. Death and charm stole your parents. But rather than become a victim, you have done everything in your power to control the fate. For what is Batman, if not an effort to master the chaos that sweeps out? An attempt to control death itself. But I can't, can I? None of us can. None of us can. None of us can manage the chaos that life brings. None of us can manage the reality that death stalks us. But the point of that little clip is a reminder that when Adam's, when the parents were killed and he witnessed it as a little boy, if Alfred hadn't stepped in and walked with him and cared for him and guided him, and then became the person he turned to, the dark night would have ended in the dark night of the soul when he lost his parents. And we're not here to talk about Batman. We're here to talk about you and me. We're here to talk about the reality of life and how it's hard and how it's tough. That's the reason we have a uh, prayer request in Bible classes and in church. That's why we pray about folks that are struggling in our church. Because life is hard. Now, it's, it's glorious and we have moments of wonder and joy, but every single person in here has one thing in common. We're going to fail at the most important task of life. We're all going to die. Now, that's the, not a great news thing on Sunday morning, especially when it's gloomy outside. But the thing that we have in common that we celebrated in the Lord's Supper is because Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. On Sunday, we celebrate victory over death. But sometimes we've got to be reminded And we need help. Somebody's got to put 
wheels back on the Batmobile. Somebody's got to change the spark plug so that engine fires. Somebody has to remind Batman of his purpose. The Apostle Paul was one of the feistiest little guys I know. He says he's not much to look at. Everything you get suggests he was not much of a physical presence. He was just a wiry little piece of gristle that was tougher than tough, except when he was alone. And there are two times we know he was alone. One was in Athens and the other was when he was in prison. Probably both times he was in prison. In Athens, he gives this great speech, but he shouldn't have given that speech. He was supposed to wait till Silas and Timothy got back to him. But he was so frustrated and alone, he got up and did that, and he was laughed out of town. And he said he came to Corinth from Athens, humiliated and in weakness and in fear. The other two times, he was in prison, and it was the dark night of the soul for him. He was left all alone. We find this in 2 Timothy. And he tells Timothy, along with some personal requests, you know, bring my coat and bring my parchments because winter is coming and it's cold. And I know I'm about to die and I want to see you before I die. And so he says, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Sounds like Jesus on the night of his betrayal, right? Where they all deserted him and ran away. Crescent has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Those are ministry events. And only Luke, the beloved physician, is with him. Get Mark, that's John Mark, and bring him with you because he is helpful to my ministry. Paul's alone and in prison, and death is certain, and he needed support and friendship. He was in the dark night of his soul. And several he mentored had abandoned him, we read in 2 Timothy. Some have turned back from the faith. Some have just simply quit uh, associating with Paul because to associate with Paul was to risk your life. And now he was alone. And it made him think of the first time he was in prison. He says, at my first offense, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Again, it sounds a lot like Jesus. Everybody forsakes him, and he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But the Lord stood at my side, and he gave me strength so that Through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. What was the symbol of Rome? You remember? Lion. He was saved that first time from the power of Rome. But it was God. It wasn't friends that supported him. He was alone. But... There was someone who stepped in to help him. He had an Alfred. He had someone who chose to step into his dark night of the soul. You remember who that was? His name was Onesiphorus. 
say that fast ten times in a row. Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus. That's how you pronounce his name, Onesiphorus. As far as I know, there's only two verses beginning and end of 2 Timothy that talk about Onesiphorus. Otherwise, he's unknown. He's an unknown or forgotten story. But his impact made an internal difference. And he stepped in to Paul's life and saved him. Now, I like to call Onesiphorus someone for us. Someone for us. Because that's the message of his life. We all need a someone for us. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we pledge when we get married? There's always going to be someone for us in marriage until that person goes to Jesus. That's the ideal. That's the goal. And isn't that what we sing when we sing, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love? We're, we're, we're saying there's always going to be someone for us because I'm in the body of Christ. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. I'm among them. There's always someone for us. And I know Jesus plus me is always a majority, but sometimes I'm the bad part of that equation and I can't do it on my own. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. Even Moses had to have Joshua hold his arms up when all it took was keeping his arms up for Israel to be victorious. We've got to have someone for us. Well, who is this someone for us? What can we know about him? And from Second Timothy we find these words, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, someone for us, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Onesiphorus, someone for us, makes a commitment to be our oasis, to be someone else's oasis in the middle of their desert. I thank God that there have been those people for me at different stages of my life. A bunch of the times it's been my wife. When our family's life was threatened with death because of Someone I had led to Christ. It took my wife's courage to act and get us out of trouble because I was frozen. I'd been in dangerous situations before, but I'd never put my family in one. When my dad died at 25, I had key people step into my life that mentored me through that. There was a guy at the church I preached in in Austin. He was the number three guy at Texas Instrument Worldwide. And he always had time for me. When he had a G and other things pressing. He was the glue in my pieces that kept me together. Paul Faulkner, you know Paul talks like this. He stepped in when my dad died. Lynn Anderson stepped in when my daddy died. I could call any of those three men any time, night or day. But even more, they would call me. Without those four people, my wife and those three men, I wouldn't have survived in ministry, much less been able to be a blessing. But there are people right here that have already been one of those someone for us kinds of friends to me here. 
The question is not, do we have those people? The question is whether or not are we those people? Are we as someone for us, friend? Notice the second thing that's said about Onesiphorus. Uh, He was not, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. If you go back to the beginning of this letter, this second Timothy, Paul is begging Timothy, this person he has sunk so much of his life into, don't be ashamed of me or, or the gospel I preach. And so much of first and second Timothy is, uh, Paul telling Timothy, come on, son, put a little starch in your underwear. Buck up a little bit, boy. It's tough. Everybody that's going to live for Christ is going to be persecuted. That's not the question. The question is, are you going to live for Jesus no matter what? While he's busy telling Timothy not to be ashamed, and when everybody else is running away, Onesiphorus was not ashamed to be identified with Paul. He wasn't deterred. He was undeterred by Paul's circumstance. He was willing to step into the middle of the mess. Now, what happens when someone is under indictment to die for an offense against Rome and you go visit them? You remember the old Gary Larson cartoons? Any of y'all friends that are big fans of Larson? And there's some deer sitting around in lawn chairs. And one of the deer walks up and it has a big bullseye on its chest. I don't know if y'all have ever seen this. It says, killer birthmark, Herb. (laughs) Well, that's what you've done. You put a bullseye on you when you go see people that are sentenced to die as enemies of Rome. But Onesiphorus was unashamed. And what you need to know is that Onesiphorus was not from Rome. He was from Ephesus which helps make this third thing clear. On the contrary, he wasn't ashamed of me. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me. He searched hard for me until he found me. When you're a kid, what's the most fun about playing hide-and-seek? It's being found. And then you get a little older and that it's you going and finding people and saying, you couldn't find me. We all want to be found. You know, one of the key games that we don't talk about much in church is some of us play hide-and-seek from the elders. Can we just tell the truth this morning? And so we get sick and we miss a week or two, and then we find it easy to miss a couple of more weeks or two, and maybe we even go to the hospital and we don't ever tell anybody and then we get upset when nobody notices we're gone. Because it hurts to be invisible, doesn't it? It hurts to be invisible. We all want to be found. Well, here's a guy that worked hard and searched long until he found Paul. Remember, he didn't have the internet. He couldn't type into Google prisons in Rome. He didn't even have the yellow pages for those of us that are older and remember yellow pages. He couldn't even 
looked for signs on the street that said prison, because prisons weren't well marked in those days, because nobody wanted them in their neighborhoods. Some things never change. So here is a guy from Ephesus that goes to Rome, and he has to start asking around to try to find out where Paul is imprisoned. What an easy task. But he did it because a real friend doesn't just find, but he works hard and searches. How many of your intentions, how many of my intentions to do something nice, to be a blessing for someone, drowned in the well of good intentions because it took too much effort or it wasn't convenient? I'll let that one sit there a little bit, but I know I need to move on because that's too convicting. Uh, Just remember, if I point my finger at you on that one, there's three more pointing back at me. He worked hard and searched hard until he found him. That's what a someone for us friend does. And then the fourth thing is, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. In other words, this wasn't a new thing. And all all of a sudden, it wasn't because there was a big disease or there was an imprisonment or there was this huge thing out there and so somebody could step into the middle of this huge event and be the hero. That's not who Onesiphorus was. He was a person like a lot of folks in this church that never get noticed to do lots of little things that keep the wheels greased and the trash picked up and the people patted on the back and the hungry fed and the forgotten remembered. A someone for us friend is a person that is consistent in the way they help others. I want you to look with me. I told you we would go over to 1 John 3. And I've got some que- a follow-up question about this that I hope you'll spend some time thinking about. But I want you to notice 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 is the mirrored image of John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that's the old... King James American Standard version of that. But a lot of us memorize that. Well, this is 1 John 3.16. If you don't have your Bible, I'm going to give you another chance, no matter what kind of device you have your Bible on, a, a chance to look at this because I want you to notice something carefully. The verse, first verse we're going to look at is a mirrored image of that one. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. All right? So in other words, John 3.16 isn't just for us as a statement of grace. It's for us as a statement as a go-do. If Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for each other. So if I were to say, would you be willing to lay down your wife for your spouse? Most of us would say yes. The rest of us need to go to marriage counseling. (laughs) If I were to say, would you lay down your life for your brother or sister? 
Most of you would want to know which one. <laughs> Let's be honest, that's right, isn't it? But theoretically, we'd like to think we'd lay down our, our life for our brother or our sister. So this is where Paul makes the cheese more binding. Okay? This is where it gets sticky. Because notice what he says. Because this giving our life for each other doesn't happen very often. Those of us that lived through the, the Vietnam War remember the, the times that we heard about this guy falling on a grenade and giving his life for his fellow soldiers. And there were a few stories of that from the Gulf War and Afghanistan. But I want you to notice verses 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. That's what Onesiphorus was. You see, he served, he served Paul when it was dangerous and when it was heroic, but he didn't wait till then to serve him in that way. Paul says, hey, Timothy, you remember he's been doing this all along. He's one of these someone for us kinds of friends, and he's always there. He's the one that makes sure it's swept up after we've had our party. He's the one that rearranges the chairs. He's the one that remembers to follow up on the widow who's lost someone, not just the first two weeks, but six weeks and 12 weeks later, because he knows that's when she's going to be hurting. He's not just the one that's willing to do the grandiose, give his life. Yeah, he'll do that. But he's going to serve consistently. If we don't have those friends, that's where our life would be. Nowhere. Trapped in darkness. In every pew that has a U on it is in the same place as we are. Every person in here needs that someone for us friend just as much as you and I do. And that's the real challenge today because it's not, did God make me a Batman or a Robin or an Alfred? And when I get to be a Batman, I'm going to be a great Batman. The real question is, who has God made you right now? What relationships has he given you? Who is he put in Bible class with you? You'll get a chance to notice because we're doing shuffling today. So you'll have a whole group of folks to take a look at. And the real question is, will you, will I be a someone for us friend? Behind every real superhero are godly, someone for us, Alfreds, Onesiphorus, friends. I'm going to ask everybody to stand a second. We're getting ready to sing the invitation song, so Tony, come on up here. Be ready to go so we don't waste any time in transition. I know some of you, because I got bad knees too. I played football in high school too. And this sit down, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight kind of stuff that we sometimes do singing uh, gets on some folks' nerves a little bit. But I want you to stand up a second. And I need you to be honest. If you're carrying a burden, you got a concern, 
you got something weighing on your heart, I want you to sit down. Okay? All right? All right? My statement is guacamole, right? Because there's more folks sitting than standing. All right, we're going to kill the lights. We're going to kill them all. We're just going to kill them all right now. God, we have people here that hurt, that are worried, that are concerned, that are facing darkness that they don't think they can defeat. And today we've tasted that you're good in communion because we know you entered death and you conquered it. But sometimes life is so stinking hard we're not sure we can make it. So we ask that you send into the life of every person seated some someone for us friends. And whether we're standing or whether we're seated, we ask with all of our heart that the Holy Spirit will remind us, will convict us, will prompt us, will alert us, will make us uncomfortable until we are someone for us, friends to others. Father, the big statement today is not just the people that are seated, but the folks that have left empty places in this church because it's in a time of transition. And so we ask that you rebuke us when we complain and you call us to minister and reclaim those that we don't see and we don't know. And as you do that, we pray you will open our eyes to the folks around us at work, at school, in the neighborhood, on the ball teams, at the dance recitals. Give us eyes to see those people and help us step in and be a someone for us friend there too. We pray you remove the scales from our eyes and call us to be Alfred's Onesiphorus. We don't want to lose a, a single potential hero in your kingdom because they were forgotten. Holy Spirit, we ask you now, we invite you now to make us like Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing. Everybody stand, we're going to sing. We're going to keep the lights down. And then we're going to be lit by the songs. And if there's somebody you just feel called to go pray with or put an arm around, it's okay. You don't have to worship the cow lick in front of you. You can go look in somebody's face and say, let's pray as we sing. Everyone.